Father, you are incredible. And as we dig into this incredible passage in the book of Philippians, I pray that you would open our minds to see uh, the glories of the gospel in the example of Jesus, that we would be humbled at Christ's humility, and that it would move us to unity as a body, that we would see um, ourselves clearly as a result of this text, but even more than that, God, that we would see you clearly and respond. Father, we need you desperately. Remind us of that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. A friend of mine uh, a couple years ago came and just kind of sought my guidance uh, on something. He was, he was really angry at uh, his church. Maybe, maybe you've been in a familiar situation. Maybe you've, you've been angry at this church for, for one reason or another. Um, maybe we fumbled something and, and you were upset about that. Or maybe you have, have past experience in another local church that kind of left a sting of bitterness um, in you, whether it was relationally with another person or with leadership or whatever. But this person came to me, and they were, they were pretty upset uh, at local church things and angry, and um, they were going to leave. And so I asked them a question. I, I said, you know, like, if there wasn't another gospel-preaching church within 60 miles, and you had no other place to go, how would it change your involvement in the issues that you're having in this local body? And um, my friend, like, was kind of, like, thrown off by my question, um, to be honest, I actually agreed with many of the things that he was upset with, right? So, like, he didn't have this unreasonable anger or angst toward his body. I, I really, uh, toward, toward this body, I really believe that some of the things that he was angry at were things that God wanted to change in this local church. But because I believe these were things that God wanted to change in the local church, I saw the fact that God had put a burden in this guy's heart for that. That, man, like, what an opportunity for you to get involved in the restoration of, of what's broken in your local body. You know, if there was no gospel-preaching church in, in, in the community around you, like, how would it change your engagement there when you can't, like, necessarily leave and, and go to a church down the road? And he didn't really have an answer for me, but he just kind of kept telling me, like, some of the problems, and, and as he was kind of telling me some of the problems, you could get this, this pulse that, in his mind, the church was kind of like too far gone. You know what I mean? Um, there was no hope left uh, for this local body of believers and for him to be involved there. And I asked him a question. I said, like, have you like, shared this with anybody in leadership at your church? He said, no. And I said, wait a minute. Hold on a second. So you have an issue with something that's going on. You believe the church is too far gone, but you haven't even gotten close enough to figure out if they were willing to change. He was unwilling to do the hard work of unity. When I was a young believer, I, I was introduced to something that um, many people call Reformed theology. And Reformed theology, I'm not going to go into what it is or anything like that. It doesn't really have to do with what we're talking about today. But Reformed theology essentially is a, a viewpoint of the Bible that elevates the sovereignty of God in the life of the believer in the life of the church. And as, as a young believer, as I'm, I'm, you know, wrestling with Reformed theology, as I'm wrestling with these amazing truths in the Bible that talk about God's purposes for suffering and how he's at work in salvation and what's going on in the Bible where it talks about things like predestination and all of these big, like, lofty questions, it, it really elevated the glory of God to me. It, it magnified the, the, the greatness of God, and I, I was blown away. 
I was blown away by what Scripture was showing me about the magnitude of God. But at the same time, I found myself verbally sparring with people that I disagreed with. And like an arrogant jerk, I tried to use the Bible as a, as a weapon to throw at people to prove them wrong and think that I was right. I was unwilling to do the hard work of unity. How willing are you to do the hard work of unity in the body? If we're honest with ourselves, um, keeping church at face value is, is very convenient. right? It's very convenient for us to walk in here on a Sunday morning, ask about seven or eight people how they're doing, hear the words good, say the words good, and then move on to the next conversation, hear the music play, sit in, the, sit in our chairs, get up, leave, and, and maybe have a conversation with one or two other people throughout the week, but um, keeping church kind of at arm's length is very convenient. Keeping community at arm's length is very convenient. And so how, how, how willing are we to do the hard work of unity? And I think as we look at the text in Philippians 2, we're going to see, one, that unity is, is hard, but that unity is valuable, and that we actually gain an understanding for how we can grow in unity as a body of Christ through looking at the example of Jesus. You see, because when we ask ourselves the question of how willing we are to genuinely be in unity, close enough to spot dissension in the body of Christ, when we're actually close and intimate with one another in that way, where we're cultivating unity, two things happen, right? We ask that question, we're face-to-face -face with the hardness of our hearts, right? Because, because we, 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 we want convenience, right? I don't want you in my junk. It's not your business. When in fact, God has called you and equipped you to act as a redemptive presence in the midst of my junk, right? Not only to call me on my junk, but to see me restore, to pray for me, to show me and be a visible manifestation of the grace of God in my life, right? Like that's, that's what we get in community. But, but when we keep it at arm's length, when community is convenient, right? <coughs> when community is convenient, we're face-to-face we're -face with the hardness of our own hearts, but we're, we're also, when we ask that question, when we ask, man, how, how willing am I to, to dig in deep with other believers in the body of Christ? How willing am I to do that? When we, when we ask that question, we begin to become face-to-face -face with the glory of the gospel. And Paul reminds us of that in Philippians 2, because Paul, he encourages the church to unity, he tells them not to be selfish, but then he just goes on this great declaration of the humility and the glory of the gospel as revealed in the person of Christ. And so we see the antidote to disunity in the gospel. And we're face to face with the glory of that. You see, if our, if our lack of unity in us exposes a disconnect from the gospel, I, I believe it does, and we're going to make that case this morning, that a lack of unity exposes a disconnect in our own hearts to the gospel, then we can only more, move toward humble unity in Christ by dwelling on the riches of the gospel. And so this morning, my hope is that this, we would dwell on the riches of of the good news of Jesus and what that means for us today. And we would just sit there, right? I'm not going to have seven points of application and things for you to do when you leave this morning. I, my goal when you leave this morning is that you would feast on the glories of Philippians 2 and just say, holy cow, wow, what a savior. What a, what a, what a savior. But I want to give you some context for this passage, right? Um, if you read through the entire book of Philippians in one setting, I, I encourage you to do it this week. It takes about 20 minutes. Um, 
what you will see is you will see Paul relentlessly over and over again pushing the church toward unity. That's all we talked about last week um, as it relates to the message that Dave preached on the end of Philippians 1. And we're going to go back to that just briefly, but throughout the whole book of Philippians, you just see Paul feeding the church over and over and over again wisdom on how to be unified as a church. And in Acts 16, we actually get a picture as to why. You see, Paul goes to this, to this church in Acts 16, um, and he starts the church in Acts 16. And what we see is we see um, Paul, as a result of the preaching of the gospel, face severe persecution from these people. And <coughs> I think it's very valuable to ask the question, like when we open up the book of Acts and we look at Acts 16, like why are these people so irritated that Paul is talking about Jesus in this way? And, and if, you, if you study or get to understand first century Roman culture, it actually exposes why these people were so angry with Paul. You see, um, Philippi was a Roman colony. And uh, Philippi was actually a Roman colony that was a result of, of wars and almost given as an inheritance by the emperor of Rome um, to Roman veteran soldiers. And so in Philippi was actually a massive population of Roman veteran soldiers. So these Roman veteran soldiers, much like American veteran soldiers, have a lot of patriotism, right? They love their country. And because Roman veteran soldiers love their country, they had this like zeal for Rome that was incredible. That's why Paul, in, last week in Philippians 1, he said, as citizens of heaven, he was, using, he, was, he was using their language because they boasted in their Roman citizenship to say, no, 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 your Roman citizenship is not first. Your citizenship in Jesus, your citizenship in heaven is first, and that informs how you live. You see, because these Roman soldiers who had a view of, of elevating their citizenship in, in, as, as Roman people, they were deifying Caesar. You see, Caesar was actually seen, this emperor of all of Rome was seen as a God-man. Caesar was seen as somebody who was both God and man, and so Caesar was somebody that was actually worshipped. But at the same time that, that Philippi was filled with Roman soldiers with much patriotism for their country who worshipped Caesar as this God-man, um, there was also a lot of religious pluralism in this culture. This is going to sound very familiar to the United States. This is why I'm talking about this. You see, in uh, Philippi, there was like this concoction of many different religions that kind of were able to coexist along one another, right? They, they didn't, even though they might have disagreed on like some things, they were able to coexist and coincide with one another without any sort of hostility. So when Paul comes into Rome and he's preaching a gospel of repentance from sin, saying you need to lay aside your, the false worship of these idols, that the God-man is not Caesar, the God-man is actually Jesus, you can see how it starts to ruffle the feathers of a bunch of patriots who love being Roman citizens. And so Paul was jailed for this. He was beaten, him and Silas, even though they were Roman citizens themselves, they were treated unfairly in Acts 16, beaten and thrown into a prison. In fact, um, this story was so crazy that uh, God ended up breaking out all of these prisoners in prison, out of prison in Acts 16. They didn't escape. Instead, they were all sitting at Paul's feet listening to him teach about Jesus. And the, Ro the Roman guard who was set to guard Paul and Silas was actually converted with all of his family. And uh, Paul ended up having to leave the city because of this persecution. So the reason why I say all that is because just because Paul got out of the church, right, and left doesn't mean the persecution left, right? This, this church still had to face much adversity because they were preaching a gospel that was so contrary to the culture that they were living in. And it created immense amounts of suffering 
for these people. That's why Paul says in Philippians 1.29.30, right before the text that we're about to go in today, he says, for it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you're engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. You see, Paul is comparing his own experience of suffering in Philippi with the Philippians' current experience of suffering. And so because of that, Paul goes into, it's in that context, in that framework, that Paul goes in Philippians 2 and he says this, if then there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Paul's plea for unity is a plea for humility. One of the things that's very interesting about this passage, you'll know, regardless of the translation that you're in, is there's four, like, if-then statements, right? He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation in love, if any fellowship in the Spirit, if any, any mercy, affection. And then after that, there's four statements and, 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 and exhortations about unity. He says, think the same way, have the same love, unite in spirit, intent on one purpose. So you see these four ifs and then these four exhortations and sandwich, they sandwich this beautiful phrase that says, make my joy complete. Make my joy complete. You see, uh, unity wasn't just in the Philippians' best interest. It was in Paul's best interest too. Paul was so connected with these people that he rooted his joy in the faith on their success in their faith. Paul was so connected with these people that when they were unified in the faith, Paul was celebrating the goodness of God at work in these people. Paul tethered his own joy to what God was doing in the Philippian church, and he says, make my joy complete, fill my joy completely. You can think of a cup that's being filled up with joy to the point of being overflowing. This is Paul's affection for these people. like He cares about them so much. So much so that he will call out their selfishness and tell them to unify around the gospel. You see, unity completes Paul's joy, but unity also comforts these people <coughs> in their suffering. And Paul knows that. Nobody wants to suffer by themselves. It's so much easier for me to cave and compromise to the temptations of this world as it relates to compromising my own faithfulness to the gospel and almost pretending like I'm not a Christian in a moment of tension when I'm disconnected from community. But when I'm standing with my brothers and sisters in the gospel, I can, I can anchor my flag in the rock of Jesus and not move because I have a community of people behind me that have my back. And my identity is not in what the world thinks of me. My identity is in what Christ thinks of me. And I, and I have a bunch of people affirming me and reminding me of that because I'm, I'm going to drift from that. I'm going to drift away from my identity in the gospel. And so that community is going to remind me of that. They're going to comfort me of that. They're going to encourage me in the midst of any sort of suffering that I have. And so Paul says, make my joy complete. Have the same mind, the same love, the same affection, the same mercy.
are we, are we so used to negative news reports that we've grown cold to the suffering of our brothers and sisters around the world? Are we so isolated in our context that we forget that there are not just people here suffering for the good news, but there's people all over the world, brothers and sisters in Christ, suffering on behalf of the gospel? I think we have, because very, very little in our own hearts are we emphasizing the necessity to be unified. Because it's in our unity in Christ that we stand on the college campus that's hostile to Jesus, on the high school campus that's hostile to Jesus, in the workplace that's hostile to Jesus, in the community that's hostile to Jesus. We stand. But we also grieve. And pray for the suffering of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Are you close enough to cross point to spot division here? Are you close enough to other brothers and sisters in Christ to spot division when it comes up? Do you have a love and affection for the people here that desires, makes you desire to move toward that division for the sake of seeing it restored? Or are we arm's length? The gospel pushes us to one another. And Paul actually says something very interesting in this passage. In verse 3, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourself. You see, the, the cause of disunity in the body of Christ is me. And the moment that we see that is the moment that our eyes are opened again to the glory of the gospel. Anytime the Bible seeks to magnify the sin of man, the Bible is actually simultaneously attempting to magnify the glory of God and the grace of God in the person of Christ. Because the more we see our sin, this is so important, the more we see our sin, the more we see God's forgiveness. And you see, when we, when we put God's forgiveness on the backdrop of human wickedness, <coughs> grace is magnified. Because then we start asking questions like, how could God forgive me? And not from a point of doubt, but from a point of amazement, right? We ask that question from a point of doubt. Like, man, there's no way God could forgive me for what I've done. Well, the Christian who's resting in grace says, man, there's no way God could forgive me for what I've done. And he has. Are you kidding me? And so when sin is magnified in the Bible, grace magnifies all the more. We have to see that in this passage this morning. And so the problem with disunity is me. It's me. It's my own selfishness. It's my own ambition. It's my own pride. And so as you're thinking about disunity, maybe even in this room, don't point your finger to the right or to the left. Ask yourself, am I, am I disconnecting from opportunities to be unified in the body of Christ here? Am I actively pursuing community in the body of Christ here? Or am I making excuses to not do that? Maybe you're, you, you've come here uh, for a few Sundays, maybe you've come here for a year, maybe you've come here for five years, and you've kind of stuck to the walls or stuck to the back of the room, or you're quick to, you know, you kind of come in at like 9.55 and you leave like right after I stop talking or Dave stops talking or Eric, and um, you haven't really had the opportunity to get anchored maybe because of other things in your life or other things pulling for your attention. I want to encourage you. I want you involved. I want to know you. 
the people here want to know you. And here's the thing. Sometimes we'll blow it. Like sometimes we won't seem like we want to know you. And that's because of our own human sinfulness. And my hope is that when you see us blow it, you see how much we need the gospel and you pray for us. Because we, we, we need prayer. We, we want you involved. We want to know you. We want to get in the trenches of life together and, and, and wrestle with what it looks like to follow Jesus together. That's what we desire. That's what we long for. But an overestimation of ourself will always cause us to undervalue community. And Paul is reminding us of that. Don't overestimate yourself. You will undervalue and undercut the, the, the beauty of what's happening in the body of Christ. And so put aside selfish ambition and leverage your life for the benefit of the people around you, starting with the body of Christ. Don't look to your own interests. Look to the interests of others. And then Paul goes into this, the most beautiful, I think, display of the gospel in all the New Testament. Philippians 2, um, 5 through 11 are worth committing to memory. I really want to encourage you to try to memorize these this week. Um, it, I, I've had the opportunity to memorize them, um, and it has just been a consistent reminder of the gospel in really horrible circumstances for me over the past few months. And so anchor yourself in this text. Dwell in this text this week. This is such a beautiful explanation of the gospel, and it's just so quick. But there's so much here. So I want to read this whole thing, and then we're going to kind of go back through and, and take a look at what Paul is saying here. <coughs> so remember, this is in the context of Paul encouraging people not to be selfish, but instead encouraging them to be unified. Verse 5, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he has come, had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's incredible news. And we don't know if this is like a, 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 a contemporary hymn to the first century church or um, if Paul penned this for the first time here. We know that it definitely, I mean, this thing has like poetic language all through it, and it's a beautiful, beautiful um, text. And so again, I just want to encourage you, like, memorize this. It's so good. But in order for us to understand verses 6 through 11, we have to look at verse 5. Adopt the same mind. The ESV says, have the same mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Um, basically, the thing that this text is trying to show us is that God is transforming not just our bodies, but our minds. And Paul is calling us to adopt, to have a mind that's reflective of Christ. And he's going to show us what that mind looks like in the next few verses. But as we look at these verses, Paul's saying, take this beautiful display of what Christ accomplished in the incarnation and in his execution and in his resurrection and in his ascension. Take this, adopt the same mind of Christ as it relates to not being selfish and considering the interests of others more important than yourself. That's what Paul is doing with this passage. 
He's using this to promote unity among the body by promoting service among the body, by showing how Christ served us. And the interesting thing is that we are the people who are not to be served. And so even when we think about people that we should serve, we should think about people who might not necessarily deserve to be served. That's what Paul actually meant when he said serve the least of these. He wasn't just talking about people that were you know, in, in, in a poor, livable condition. He was talking about people that you actually do not want to serve. And that the gospel gives you a mindset, a framework of seeing the humility of Jesus and emulating that humility and, and actually serving those people with joy. With joy. And so I think there are three ways that this exposes Jesus' humility to us, right? Jesus, Jesus gives us an example of humility in leaving his position of glory. Right? who existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Uh, some of your translations might say grasp. Basically, the idea behind that word is to hold on tightly for my own selfish advantage. And what's happening here is Paul is saying Jesus pre-existed eternally. In eternity past, Jesus was not created. He was not the first creation of God. Jesus has always existed. And because Jesus has always existed, he pre-existed in a state of glory incredible glory that you and I cannot fathom. We get a, a taste of the glory that Jesus was in before the Father at the mountain of transfiguration in Matthew 17 when Jesus takes his disciples up to the mountain. He's transfigured before him. His clothes are sparkling white. He's, he's shining like the sun and he's literally having a conversation with Moses and Elijah. Like what is happening? Moses and Elijah are dead. Somehow he's having a conversation with them. Peter's so blown away, he's like, I'm just gonna build a tent and put you in a tent and you in a tent and you in a tent. Because Peter can't even, he sees this as so glorious, like he has to shield himself from it. <clears throat> because Peter knows that, that he cannot stand in the presence of the glory of God. And so the, the glory of Jesus was given a taste. A taste in Matthew 17. I encourage you to read that this week. But Jesus existed in this, this state of glory. And, and, and unlike Adam, you see what Adam did in, in, in Genesis 3 was he was told, if you eat the fruit of the tree, you will not surely die, but you'll become like God. And so what Adam did was he attempted to seize opportunity to be like God for himself, to be leveraged and used for his selfish advantage. And him and Eve ate the fruit of, knowledge of, uh, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And, and their desire to be like God. And, and Jesus was God, and yet he did not leverage that status, unlike Adam, he didn't leverage that status for his advantage. In fact, he, he set aside that status and came down and clothed himself in human flesh to serve people who did not deserve it. And this is a difficult thing. A lot of, a lot of uh, scholars have wrestled with this text. Like, what does it mean that he emptied himself, and what did he empty himself of? And Here's what we know. And here's what you need to know as it relates to the passage in this text this morning. When Jesus came and dwelled at him as a man, he did not stop being God. He maintained his godness. And so in, in, in Christ, it, we have both fully God and fully man, which is something that's going to blow all of our minds. I'm not going to pretend like I completely understand it. It's, it's humbling that we can't understand that. The perplexity of the union of Christ's deity and humanity should humble us, which is what Paul is driving at here. So he didn't lose his divinity. What he did was he set aside the status and the prestige of his divinity. 
right? Jesus deserved to be in an exalted state. He set aside that exalted state to take on an unexalted state in a human being. Does that make sense? That's what's happening. But Jesus also didn't leverage and use that deity, right? Like Jesus didn't walk around as a human being carrying a deity card that he just played when things got hard. He never leveraged his deity for his own advantage. He didn't use his deity to make his human experience less difficult because he was fully man. He was a full human. And we're going to see in this passage actually how Jesus didn't use his deity. He chose to not leverage his deity for his own selfish advantage on the cross. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. And so those are the two things that you need to know about the union of Christ, the God-man. Jesus didn't cease being God. He maintained his godness as a human being. But then at the same time, he didn't use that deity to his own advantage in the form of a man to make the human experience easy. Jesus' human experience was just as torturous as yours and mine is. In fact, it was more torturous, and we're going to see that here in a moment. Jesus also modeled humility by becoming a servant, right? He took on the life of a servant, the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he came, he humbled himself as a man. Jesus was a servant, the exalted, preexistent, glorious King of kings and Lord of lords, put on humanity and was born in a horrible circumstances. Um, for those of you who have spent any time with me around Christmas, you know I can't stand mangers and like that whole nativity scene. I don't like it. And there's a couple reasons why. First is Jesus isn't white, and he's never white. He's always white on the, on, the, on the nativity scene. But the second reason is this. They're too clean. Jesus was born and birthed in horrible, horrendous circumstances. We, see, we, we miss the humility of the incarnate Son of God being born as a, as, a, as a baby when we try to clean that up. He was born in horrendous circumstances, He was raised up in poverty. He worked with his hands. He grew up in an undesirable community. In fact, he spent a lot of time in Egypt, which was like, you know, if you know anything about the book of Exodus, it's not like the place to be if you're a Jew. They don't like Egypt. Egypt is not a place to go. Jesus' entire life was categorized categorized by humility. In fact, even when Jesus was at, at, at his highest, he was at best a homeless traveling teacher. Everything about Jesus' life screams service and humility. And the thing that blows me away is when you, when you go up to the mountain of transfiguration and you see the glory of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, you're like, why? Why would he serve us? He, there's, there's nothing about us that makes us want to be helped. We are a people who are to be pitied among everything. In fact, we are the very enemies of God. Why would Jesus come to serve the enemies of his Father? What in the world is going on? And, and this is the humility of Christ. He didn't just serve people. He served the worst people, which is you and me. And we, like, we have to see that to see the beauty of the gospel. If we cannot humbly look at ourselves and say, I am not one to be served, then you're going to miss what Christ is doing in the gospel. He became a servant. He took on the lowest status a human being could put on. He didn't just become a man. He became a low man. And and low status is not something you and I love to pursue. Um, Years ago, I got a job working at Samaritan Ministries. And 
Um, I was, it was an entry-level position. I was running a switchboard. Basically, calls would come in. I would answer the phone. I would say, thanks for calling Samaritan Ministries. How can I help you? I would get an assessment for kind of what they needed, and then I would transfer them on to somebody more qualified to answer. I didn't like this position. And in my pride, I began to, because I had a wireless headset, I could kind of walk away from my desk. And so deceitfully, I would walk away from my desk and try to answer questions when I knew they were above my pay grade. In my pride, I was trying to seize a higher position because in that moment, I wanted to be like God, and that's how it showed up in my life. And I got in a lot of trouble for that. I almost lost my job. God, in his grace, let me keep my job. But low status is not something that we, we desire very much. And, and some, of, some people read this passage, and they, they think that... Um, Paul is calling everybody to like relinquish their status and everybody kind of become the lowest they can. That's, Paul's actually calling the church to do something far more radical. He's actually calling the church to use the status they have to serve people. And so if you're in a status of prestige, right, like you're a manager or CEO, don't leverage that position for your own interests. Leverage it for the, for the interests of your employees. <coughs> or your customers, radically serving them in the context of your business to the glory of God, not the glory of your business, which means talking about the gospel. Whatever status or position you're in, I'm not going to list a bunch of them this morning. Whatever position or status you currently have, we all have one. God is not calling you to step down from your position of status. He's calling you to use your position of status for the benefit of serving others. And so how can you do that? How can you serve others? How can you take on the form of a servant in whatever place you are in currently in this stage of life right now? Leverage your status to serve like Christ leveraged his status to serve. Christ didn't cease being God. He leveraged his godness to serve humanity by dying for his enemies. And that's how we see Jesus' humility in this text. We see him dying for his enemies. And simultaneously, what you see in the cross is the magnitude of God's hatred for sin and the magnitude of God's love for his people. You see, because at the cross, we can't think about the gospel without going to the cross. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross. If you're in Christ, Jesus died for you. He didn't just become a man for you. He didn't just become a servant for you. He died for you. And he didn't just die a normal death. No, no, no. The Son of Man was betrayed by his friend, one of his closest friends. He was beat. He was kept up all night being ridiculed and thrown through the most horrible trial in the history of time. He had a crown of thorns pressed on his skull. He was mocked, and in the mockery, they were actually proclaiming truth, but they were spitting in his face and punching him. They took a Roman execution rack and put it on his back and forced him to carry it up a hill to Golgotha, the place of skull. They nailed him to the cross and watched him die and made a spectacle of his naked body as it hung bleeding on the cross. 
Jesus wasn't just humiliated in his incarnation. Jesus was humiliated in his execution. But it's at the cross that we see the beauty of our Savior. You see, because he didn't say a word. In fact, from the cross, he shouts out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And even in that moment, as a thief cries out from his side, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. You see, because at the cross, we think of the cross often, and we think the most agonizing thing at the cross is all of this physical suffering that Jesus is enduring. It doesn't even come close to what Jesus is actually suffering for. You see, we, we rewind the scene to the Garden of Gethsemane, and we see the horror of the cross there. Because as Christ is agonizing in prayer, sweating profusely, disturbed. This is the most disturbed that we've, we've you know, throughout the whole gospel story, you see like a, like almost like a confident Jesus. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, you see a disturbed Jesus. He's, there's something going on. He's disturbed in spirit. There's something wrong with him. And what's happening in that moment is he's crying out to God and he's saying, take this cup from me. And a Jew would know exactly what he's talking about. They would be reminded of Jeremiah. And you see the prophet of Jeremiah, when he prophesied that the Babylonians were going to come and eradicate the community of Jerusalem, he likened it to a cup of God's wrath being poured out on the community for their sin. And it came in the horrendous captivity and deportation of Jews to Babylon. And Jesus is staring at this cup in the face because he knows that this this cup isn't about to be poured out. This cup is about to be drank by him. And the entirety of God's wrath and hatred for human rebellion is going to be placed on the shoulders of Jesus. And on the cross, Jesus is going to cry out the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because heaven itself will turn its face away from the Son of God and the one who existed in pre-existent glory for the first time in all eternity is going to be separated from the Father. And the one who is always unified with his Father is going to be separated so that the rebels, me, who should be eternally separated and damned, can be brought into union in the love of God and experience the grace and the mercy of the gospel. The Son of God was separated so that you and I can be unified to the God of the universe who loved us and gave himself for us. And Jesus stared that cup of God's wrath in the face and he said, take this cup from me, but not as I would, Father, as you would. Let me, let me do your will. Not as I would do it, God, but as you would do it. And it's in that moment that we see Jesus could have played his deity card right there. He didn't. He didn't leverage his deity in the moments of suffering on the cross where he was separated from the glory of God. He didn't leverage it to make his suffering easy. He kept his status aside to serve by bearing human wickedness on himself. Are we no longer in awe of that? Have we just excused the, the cross as a, as a message for people who don't know Jesus? Or are we continually living in awe of what Jesus did for us, church? Are we amazed that the incarnate Son of God not only became a servant, not only took on human flesh, but died for his enemies in the most horrible way possible, being, eternally, being separated from his Father? so that we can be brought near to the Father.
we meet grace at the cross. Because it's in that moment that we see everything that we deserve being put on the shoulders of another. And it was that same Jesus who said, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. We have rest because Christ had agony. But Christ's example of humility in Philippians 2 gives us unshakable hope because we do not worship a dying Savior. We worship a risen Savior. We worship a victorious Savior. I I love verse 9. It's for this reason. Here's why Jesus is highly exalted, because he died. And so the Christ who emptied himself is now lifted up. For this reason, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The entire universe, every knee would bow and confess with their tongue, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The most wicked person you can ever conceive of one day is going to bow their knee to the Lord and confess with their mouth the lordship of Jesus. And we have unshakable hope in that reality because when we see the resurrected Jesus, we know that we too will be resurrected, that there will come a day when Jesus Christ will crack the sky and descend from on high, and the dead who are in Christ will rise, and we will meet him, and we will usher him into his kingdom on earth. And we, the people of God, will reign with Christ on earth forever. Forever. And we will experience the culmination of what God designed in Genesis 1 and 2. We will be in complete union with the Father, in worship of the King of kings and Lord of lords. I love that Eric referenced eternity earlier, saying the song of praise to God will never stop. And in fact, we will be so blown away by the glory of God revealed in the return of Jesus that you and I, who will have spent a lifetime studying and wrestling with Scripture and and growing in our understanding of this Christ that we could only see by faith, the moment where we see him with our eyes, no matter how much we've learned in the Bible, we will still be blown away. Blown away at the incomprehensible glory of the King of kings and Lord of lords that is sitting at the right hand of the Father, reigning victoriously now because he died for my sins. It's glorious news. It really is. And it's in this news that we can be unified. You see, unity, humble unity in the gospel starts with the gospel. It starts with the gospel. Worship team, you guys can come up. How willing are you to do the hard work of unity? worth it. You know, it's hard. It's hard work. Sometimes I don't like this guy. Sometimes he doesn't like me. Most of the time he doesn't like me, but he loves me. Are you willing to get close enough 
to see the sin in other people that killed Jesus? And are you willing to get close enough to see the grace and to offer the grace of what Christ died for to another person in the body of Christ? Are you willing to humble yourself and ask for forgiveness, not just from the King of Kings, but from your friend who you wronged? Are you willing to leverage your status for the good of others? Are you willing to be unified in Christ because of that news? Listen, if you do not know Jesus, do not wait for him to crack the sky in order to confess his lordship because on that day you will not be confessing his lordship from a posture of joy. You will be confessing it from a posture of fear because you cannot believe that you spent your entire life ignoring the good news. And you know what's coming, that condemnation for those who do not know Christ. So if you do not know Christ, do not wait for that day. It's coming. But if you're in Christ, do not hide that news from anyone. We cannot hide this news anymore. Because there's one day where every single person will confess and we will all give an account and and. For those who are in Christ, we're going to have the merit of Jesus on us. And we have to tell that to people so they know. We can't hide it anymore. And we have to do it in unity. Let's pray. Fix our eyes to the cross. Fix our eyes to the resurrection. Help us see you. Help us know you. God, as we think about our own lives, forgive us. Forgive us for the moments where we've hidden the gospel from others. Forgive us for the moments where we've, we've sought disunity in our own pride and selfish ambition. But God, help us to dwell on your humility. Help us to dwell on your incarnation. Help us to dwell on your service. Help us to dwell on your death. Help us to dwell on the glory you're sitting in. May it humble us this morning. And may we stand in awe at the example of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.